0: If you're joining the Wallace family through the remote um, streaming, welcome. We're very, very grateful that you've joined us. Our preaching series is in 1 Peter, and we have come to 1 Peter chapter 5. As you're turning to your Bibles, I have a special announcement for you. At the conclusion of the service, don't leave. After I give the benediction, sit down, give us five more minutes. We have several very important announcements for the whole church body. So make a mental note. Don't leave the service. I'll try to remind you again right before the benediction, but we invite you to stay for some important announcements. Our text this morning is 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 7. This is actually the third look we're taking at this text. This is the word of the Lord. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Sooner or later, a churchgoer begins to wonder what kinds of things they really want to see in their local congregation. What do they want to have happening there? What do they want to experience? What realities do they want to partake of? Peter's actually answering that question for you. Peter says what he wants to see in the local churches is effective leadership, and vital relationships. Those two things may have come to your mind. Effective leadership, vital relationships. Where did Peter even get this notion? Watching Jesus for three years. He saw the leader of leaders par excellence, the Lord Jesus Christ. He watched Jesus inculcate, teach, what vital relationships look like. And now Peter wants these same things in the churches to which he writes. What fruit of the Spirit is absolutely essential to both effective leaders and vital relationships? Did you see it in the text? It's the grace of humility. The grace of humility. That raises three questions. So we're going to look about what Peter teaches us not about the shepherding function, we've looked at that the last two weeks, but about this call to all of you, he says, all of you be humble toward one another. Raises three questions. Number one, why are we exhorted to be humble? What makes that so necessary? The biblical truth standing behind this exaltation, to be humble, to clothe yourself with humility, is that in our natural state, The thing that most beautifies your soul, humility, you least desire. And the thing that most soils your soul, pride, you least detect. So in our natural state, (laughs) the odds are stacked against us. We're not naturally humble. We are naturally proud. This is why uh, Peter exhorts us to humility. And you can see why lack of humility affects relationships. When you're proud, you lack awareness of your impact on other people. You're not other-centered. You're thinking about yourself. You're not considering how other people experience you. And you need to. If you're going to be humble, humility ultimately issues in other-centeredness, other-focusedness. We'll see that a little bit later in the sermon. It's certainly true in the Philippians 2 passage that Jamie quoted in his prayer. But you've got to be asking yourselves these kinds of questions about your impact on others. Do I push people away or draw them in? Do people sense that I have time for them? I'm interested in their welfare, I value them? Or do they experience me as a vacuum of self-concern? Am I that person that's always questioning or bossing or pointing out what's wrong? Do I come across as a know-it-all? Am I aware of the need in my heart to be right, to be liked, to be in control? you find that you often turn conversations as soon as you have the chance to your perspective, your opinion, your experiences. I love what Proverbs says about this, Proverbs 10, 11, The righteous man's mouth is a fountain of life so that by the way you speak, people are refreshed. By the way you're attentive to their needs, people find they want to come back to you for more. The reason these are important questions I'm I'm really exhorting you to think carefully about is that because we tend to be blind to our impact on other people. And this comes out in the text that was read earlier in the service from Matthew 7. Jesus, teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, starts by warning against this proclivity in our hearts to judge other people's motives, And in that context, he says, look, we all have blinders, not Jesus, but we all have blinders in our perspective. He calls them logs that keep us particularly from seeing our own faults, foibles, and frailties. And Jesus asks you this question, Matthew 7, 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye. Well, why? Why do we have this innate tendency to shrink our own foibles and at the same time magnify that which is wrong with other people? Well, Jesus is creating a a helpful tool for you. He's, He's creating a window into your heart For you to see how pride manifests itself in you. Because he wants you to see spiritually with great clarity. And we have these things called logs. A log is any way you fail to love God or love neighbor. Logs are any manifestation of pride in your life. And they tend to blind you from seeing yourself accurately and helping other people. There is a call to help other people with their specs, but we're hindered, we're hamstrung from doing that because of where we put our focus on their specs, not on our logs. So when you're confronted with other people's sins, it's a great opportunity to ask yourself these questions. Am I as ruthlessly, ruthlessly critical of myself as I am of others? Am I more interested in helping them or condemning them? In other words, when you focus on someone else's faults, by definition, you've got to look past your own, right? Your eye doesn't have the ability to keep something close in focus and something far away in focus at the same time. So what we tend to do is we tend to shrink our logs into specs, looking past them to other people's specs that we magnify into logs. And it's worth asking, what would be motivating my heart to do that? To put a greater emphasis on what's wrong with other people than myself. I have to think about that, I have to probe my heart, and I wonder if I'm trying to find my own sense of moral goodness in what's wrong with other people, perhaps because I don't want to face what is distasteful in my own character. I don't know. You think about that for yourself. But Jesus is inviting you to ask some soul-searching questions, such as, where might you be lying to yourself about what you're really like? could those specks in that person's eye that bug you so much actually be reflections back to you of logs in your character you're not seeing? How are you silencing your character when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and testifies to you about your logs? How might you be silencing your conscience? Oh, that flawed person over there could you actually be as bad as they are if left to yourself? So Jesus is saying, in a sense, we all interpret life through one of two lenses, the humility set of glasses or the pride set of glasses. What does that mean? It means that the way you choose to interact with people, the way you uh, basically interpret everything you do is either through the grace of humility or through pride. So what is is this lens, these glasses of humility? Well, there are two lenses to it, and they are mercy and grace. The humble heart sees everything in their life through the lens of mercy. I have not received what I deserve, the judgment of God. I've not received it. And grace. I've received far more than I deserve. That's how the humble heart sees everything, not least relationships, and not least difficult people. You view it through this lens. I have not received everything I deserve. Praise God for his grace and Jesus, his mercy, and his grace I have far more than I could ever dream of because of Jesus. Those those are the humility glasses. What are the pride glasses? Well, those two lenses are the deserving and the demanding lens. When when you're looking at your life and particularly relationships through the glasses of pride, on the one hand, there's this deserving. And this is an impression, it's not a fact. I deserve better than I have. And that leads you to a demanding lens, an impression, not a fact. I demand whatever I think would make me happy. Deserving, I deserve better. Demanding, I'll get this. Two different ways of looking at life. As I've grown as a follower of Jesus, I realize this about myself. I am far more proud than I realized. I'm not as humble as I thought. I need to change more than I know. And I should ask, when confronted with others' faults, could that be me? Now, I am not what I once was. By the grace of Jesus, He has changed me. We believe in something called, fancy theological word, progressive sanctification. That means when Jesus comes into your life, he really does begin to change you by his spirit. You're a different person. You should see growth, change, maturity, more humility, less pride as you grow as a Christian. Well, What I guess I'm saying is that Christian growth is also accompanied by... Painful discovery of the depth of pride in our own hearts and lack of humility, even though we are changing, even though God is making us more and more like his son. So, for example, consider where you might find yourself in these contrasts. The humble don't want to be proud. The proud don't want to be humble. The humble see their pride and loathe it. The proud see humbling and loathe it. The humble do not recognize the humility. They're usually the last to see it. The proud, they don't recognize their pride as a rule. The humble boast in their weaknesses. The proud despise weakness. The humble long for what God wants. The proud long for what they want. The humble way their impact on others, as we've seen already, the humble way their impact on others, the proud way others impact on them, The humble sorrow for their lack of gratitude. The proud seek gratitude from others. The humble, as a rule, look to God for help. The proud help themselves. The humble, as a rule, can initiate critical self-evaluation. The proud avoid it while criticizing others. The humble grieve over their own faults. The proud obsess over the faults of others. The humble are content. To promote others, the proud long to be promoted. The humble see all possessions as a gift. The proud feel entitled to their possessions. And finally, as a rule, the humble know they fare better than they deserve. The proud think they deserve better. So think about those as some tests to measure where you may be growing in the grace of humility and discovering your pride. Let's ask this question secondly. What does humility look like? Peter tells us, he gives us three vivid pictures of humility. He says humility is like clothing, it's about position, and it's about timing. Let's look at those three things from the text. Humility is clothing. Peter writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. It's a command, it's not a choice. It's something, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will take seriously, you will intentionally do, you will clothe yourself with humility. It's an amazing verb in the ancient language in the Greek. The the the, the verb clothe here was used of a servant taking up an apron and tying an apron around his or her waist. So humility is a posture of servanthood. When you get up in the morning, you want to put on those humble lenses, mercy, grace, you don't want to see life through those proud lenses, deserving, demanding the first thing you'll do is put on your servant's apron. And by definition, where are servant's eyes fixed? On others. They exist to serve others. That means that humility is fundamentally other-centered. Your joy is bringing good to others. And you resist the tendency to want to be served. Christian author Rick Warren put it this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility doesn't call you to say you're terrible and worthless and valueless and there's nothing good about you. That's not humility. There's much good about you if you're made in the image of God and he's given you gifts and talents and many things like that. No, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less because the servant exists To serve others. So that means you can actually find humility uh, uh, in the way that you serve. A pastor told me a long time ago, you never really know you have a servant's heart until somebody treats you like a servant. (laughs) Do you dislike the fact that somebody Mm -hmm. might ask you to serve them? (laughs) The servant's heart says this, what an honor to serve Jesus By serving you. And humility can be seen in whom you're willing to serve. So if some really important person walked into the room, I would be tempted to go serve them and do what I want for them. Some insignificant, lowly person walks in. I'm probably not thinking about serving them. So you see the glory of the servanthood of the Lord Jesus when he got down and washed the feet, the dirty, filthy feet of his disciples in the upper room, recorded for us in John 13. That was an act of unbelievable servanthood, condescension. They should have been serving him by all rights. No. John, uh, Mark 10:44. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's as if when he began his public ministry... He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. He received his father's approval. You're my beloved son. And he right then tied that apron around his waist and said, I am here to serve for three years. And this this gives you freedom. There's such freedom and humility toward one another. Freedom. You have your apron on. You're saying, no, you don't exist to serve me. I exist to serve you. It's interesting that in the Hebrew language, the word for pride and haughtiness means to be or to become high. There's a very vivid picture that pride and haughtiness is, is putting oneself high, dismissing the rule of God, and thinking oneself superior to others. And think about it. The more you have, the easier it is to feel superior. The more knowledge you have, you feel superior to people with not so much knowledge. Same with money, same with power, same with ability, same with opportunities. You you tend to feel superior to people with less, (laughs) forgetting that everything you have is a gift of God to be used for his glory in the service of others. So humility is the freedom saying, look, I don't need your approval. I don't need your cooperation. I don't need you to respect me. I don't insist on those things. Jesus didn't insist on those things. I have what Paul calls in Ephesians 3.8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Humble people know how rich they are in union with Jesus Christ because of all that Jesus Christ has done for them and is in them and doing for them. They don't make demands of other people. They are, therefore, free to serve them. So, boys and girls, I want to ask you this question. How might your pride become manifested in your relationships with your brothers and sisters and your friends and your peers at school? So, for example, what do you like when you don't get your own way? That shows you pride in your heart. I deserve, I demand when you're criticized, do you get defensive? Do you, do you, do you, are you tempted to protect yourself? That's pride. Are you quick to make excuses? Or do you own your faults and your failures? That's humility as clothing. Second picture is humility as position. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Wow! Now, you may remember that a couple years ago I preached a whole sermon series on this text and I preached a whole sermon sermon on that one phrase, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Not going to do that this morning. Just consider that for a second, that you and I have a tendency, a proclivity, to slip out from under the hand of God and to be our own God to rule our lives. We crave our autonomy. We love self-rule. And the Bible says... Self-rule is a disaster. You'll ultimately hurt yourself and others. It's terrible for you. And it is a rejection of the rule of God. Humble yourself, Peter says, under the mighty hand of God. Now, if anybody is serious under the mighty hand of God, they've got to be humble. Because think about what the hand of God represents. In the scripture, the hand of God represents his presence as one guiding another in a dark place, his protection as one we depend upon for security and strength. The hand of God represents God's providence. He's leading and providing and caring for us, ordaining our circumstances. God's perspective. God is explaining what reality is like, what he's like, what we are like, what we can expect in life. What a blessing. And God's power. His hand is his power. And in light of his power, we should feel small yet so important, that he would put his hand upon us. It's interesting that in the text, uh, Peter says he particularly singles out younger people to be subject to their elders. That's an expression in your life of living under the hand of God, recognizing God has ordained these shepherds for your good. Younger, younger people, be subject to your elders. More we could say about that. Humility is position. Is that the place you want to run every morning? Is that the place you need to go to, to cure you of your pride and self-interest and self-promotion? Under the hand of God, stay there. Think about it. Look at who God is. Let him reveal himself to you in his word, and that will humble you. And then the third picture, you have humility is clothing, Humility as position, and the third is humility as timing. Peter promises, and at the proper time, God will exalt you. Why does he focus on timing? Because of this tendency in our hearts to take exaltation for ourselves when we want it, a lot sooner maybe than when we deserve it. Throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus repeatedly using this phrase, this warning. He who exalts himself will be humbled He who humbles himself will be exalted. Now he's inviting you to supply words. What Jesus is saying is this. You who exalt yourself in a bad way will be humbled in a bad way. You who humble yourselves in a good way will be exalted in a good way. That's what Peter is reflecting in the words of Jesus. There's a time for God to exalt you. Wait on him. Clearly in 1 Peter as we've seen in our teaching there is this eschatological movement of the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of time and when Jesus is exalted all who belong to Jesus will be exalted with Christ. That's the final exaltation we are awaiting. Therefore we're not insisting on self-exaltation prior to that. Let God promote you. Doesn't mean you shouldn't work hard doesn't mean you shouldn't strive to be the victor, run in such a way as to win the race. Of course you should do those things. You should be excellent in everything that you do, for God's glory's sake. If he chooses to exalt that, live under his hand, humbly, with that servant's apron on. Last question. Just looking three questions at the text. Last one. What's the best reason to be humble? Do you see it in the text? How about this, verse 5? God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. I can't think of a more compelling reason to be humble than God promising to oppose the proud and to give grace to the humble. It seems like most commentators see this as a recapitulation of Proverbs 3.34. It was read earlier in the service. So does God have a right to oppose the proud? He does. Does he have a responsibility to oppose the proud? He does. What an amazing, what, an, what a stunning thing that God chooses to give grace to the humble. And it should lead you, taking that seriously, think on that. God opposes the proud. You do something in... Uh, um, unbridled pride, you should expect God to oppose that in some way because he loves you. You seek to adorn that servant's apron and, 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 uh, and live by the grace of humility, you should expect God to add to that grace. You should expect that. So it should raise this question if you're taking this seriously. How do the proud become humble? The answer is the proud become humble Only by meeting Jesus Christ in his humility. There's only one way on earth, one way in human history to experience the grace of humility, and that is to know the Lord Jesus Christ in his. Let me describe briefly but not exhaustively the humility of Jesus. His heart lay in the grip of his Father's glory. He joyfully submitted to the will of his Father. In all things did he please his Father. Jesus voluntarily set aside some of his glories, of his eternal prerogatives, to come to this earth in a human body. Jesus felt no compulsion to assert or to promote himself. He feared no man Needed no one's approval. Scripture says in certain places. He didn't read faces. He didn't care what people thought of him. Jesus endured hideous injustices. Without demanding his rights. Jesus suffered unwarranted. Unjust scorn. Derision. Mocking. Ridicule. Silently. Peter has already pointed out in chapter 2. Silently. And Jesus loved the unlovely. He accepted the unacceptable. He embraced the filthy. And so the point would be self-exaltation can be subdued, but not by the self. (laughs) You become rich spiritually by admitting your poverty. It's the very thing the proud can't do. Admit they have nothing. So how do you become humble? You need to fall in love with someone so great they will humble you and so humble they will melt away your self-glory. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ, who was humble without sinful, who was glorious, exalted without sinful pride, and humble, and he never, you look at Jesus, you study Jesus, you're never provoked to envy, envy, You're drawn into his heart. It's the very heart that he tells us is there for the weary when he invites the weary to himself. In Matthew 11, come to me. You'll find rest for your souls. It's what the humble want. And he says, you will find my heart to be gentle and humble. Yes, yes, yes. Only Jesus can humble a proud heart, and he does so ultimately by bringing you to his cross. And the cross, if you studied it, is full of mysterious, holy irony. Irony. Think about the cross. What appeared to be a criminal's gruesome death actually secured glorious, eternal life. On the cross, God the Father opposed his son, as it were, so the proud can live and be forgiven. On the cross, the prince of life went to war against your sins. On the cross, the only holy man to ever live became filthy sin in his body to remove it from you forever. On the cross, Jesus took all his power and used it to become weak. On that cross, Jesus, God blessed, blesses, the God who blesses became a curse on a tree he himself had made, the very wood into which Jesus' flesh was made. He had created, he spoke into existence at one time in history. Glory on the cross, you can bring him your pride, and in exchange he will honor you with the crown of a son or a daughter of the living God. And that means that the richest, the most blessed, the most secure, the most peaceful, joyful people have nothing to brag about because they have it all in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you see the irony of the grace of the gospel? The light of his love and mercy understood through his cross and resurrection burns away the fog of our self-importance. If you've not experienced that, I invite you to. I I invite you to come before the cross of Jesus. You see many different descriptions of it in 1 Peter alone. Come before that cross and stay there until the love, the forgiveness, the acceptance, his work reconciling you to a holy God through this gruesome death until it burns away the fog of your self-importance. And then you will see how absolutely precious you are to God that his son would die for you. So here's the ultimate irony. The exalted God makes his home in humble hearts. And Peter is saying, that's the kind of church, both leaders and relationships, we want. Because when the exalted God in Christ makes his home in a humble heart, you'll see it. You'll see it. You'll experience it. Others will experience it in you. Let's pray. We want to never cease to be amazed, our Father, that you choose to be enthroned by the Holy Spirit in proud hearts by humbling them through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be that we never boast, save in that cross, by which we have been made partakers of the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts with the spirit of grace and humility, the spirit of other-centeredness, that in this church, Wallace Presbyterian, we would see the kind of humble leadership and humble, vital relationships he has depicted for us. And all of that to the glory of Jesus, King and Head of the Church. We pray in his name. Amen.